This Cap Times podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Learn more at exactsciences.com. You know, sometimes it's hard because what we say isn't sexy. You know, what's sexy is to have a book with someone pretty on the cover. And so sometimes we sound boring and we just have to figure out how to find it, what really matters to people and reach out to that. This is The Corner Table, a podcast about food and drink in Madison, Wisconsin, produced by the Capital Times. I'm Lindsay Christians. And I'm Chris Lay. So what do you think about going paleo? Have you ever done a whole 30 January? Maybe considered keto? Have you ever been served up an ad on Instagram for whatever a DNA diet is? If you do enough dabbling around this stuff, you will eventually figure out that a good diet is fairly simple. Fruits, veggies, whole grains, and lean protein. Dairy, if you're into it. I am, personally. Still, the people in the companies who make money off telling us what to eat really want to make it complicated. So this week, uh, we're going to be talking with Beth Olson, who teaches in the Department of Nutritional Sciences at the University of Wisconsin, specializing in helping families make healthy choices. The USDA Nutritional Guidelines for 2020 are about to be released, and we had her on to help us unpack what's new. We are so delighted to be participating this week in the Wisconsin Science Festival, which runs October 15th through the 18th at UW-Madison. There are tons of cool events happening online as part of the festival. Check it out at wisconsinsciencefest.org. And meanwhile, give a listen. Hello, welcome, Beth. Hello, thanks for having me here. Yeah, thank you for joining us today. So I have a very short bio of you, just that you are an expert on helping families make healthy nutrition choices and an associate professor in the Department of Nutritional Sciences. Is there anything I've missed there? Can you tell us a little bit more about what you do? Sure. I am an uh, associate professor in nutritional sciences, so that's on the UW-Madison campus. And uh, like many faculty, I have a research program, and mine is really especially focused on families that have infants and how to feed them healthy, including breastfeeding, early infant feeding. But then most other faculty would be teaching more. They would be teaching undergraduate classes. They would have graduate coursework they teach. I have a different type of appointment where I also work with the Division of Extension, and I support their programs that they deliver that would have a nutrition component or a health component, a little bit about physical activity, so that those programs that are delivered by extension around nutrition are evidence-based. That's kind of my role is to make sure that we are doing things that are grounded in science and informed by um, the evidence. All right. So we asked you here today to talk a little bit about the upcoming USDA dietary guidelines. And I think I want to start by framing it a little. Why did the USDA start making dietary guidelines and how are they used today? Yeah, so they evolved out of early um, Senate, uh, Senate Select Committee that actually was put together in the 70s because they were surprised, some of the people in government that went out to find out that we still had hunger and malnutrition in the United States. So they put together a committee to address that. Over time, though, there was a recognition that we had at the same time a disease burden in the United States related to chronic disease driven by overnutrition or poor nutrition. So it wasn't just people being hungry. It was people um, eating things that weren't healthy and developing these chronic diseases like heart disease and cancer. So the dietary guidelines became a group of recommendations informed by a scientific committee gathered up by the government, USDA and the Department of Health and Human Services, to review the science and say, what is the best guidance we can provide for the um, nation as a whole at this time around nutrition to make us healthy? Now, I think one of the, sometimes a misunderstanding is what the guidelines are for. The guidelines really aren't for the public. They're really for federal government programs to inform them how to serve the public. And they're used by health professionals, by educators, by teachers. And really, it's those groups in between who are more charged with taking that, the guidelines and implementing them in a way that's appropriate for their audience. And so there are new guidelines that are coming out. Yes, at the end of uh, this year, 2020. 
How often do they update the guidelines? They now update them every five years. That's actually a requirement. It's a law that they have to update them every five years. So the last ones, you know, they say 2020. They always come out like at the very end of 2020. So they're kind of like the 2021 guidelines. But they go for another five years and then they'll convene another scientific panel look at them, say, is there anything else we should be concerned about, anything we should change, and then they'll come out again. Yeah. And what are some of the, like, are there any examples of huge shifts in guidelines from like five years to five years? So um, yes and no. So as it happens this year, there is one big change, which was um, the dietary guidelines have historically addressed Americans two years of age and older. This year, for the first time, they were required to consider pregnant women and babies from birth to two years of age. So that was brand new. The zero to two was brand new this year. So that's a yes part. But on a no part, in some ways they don't. I think people see messaging out there in the news um, that picks up a point and puts it out there and they think, wow, you know, things have just changed. Science just, they just don't know what they're doing. But if one actually went back, and you can do this on USDA's website to like the 80, 85, 90 guidelines, a lot of them are the same or similar. Eat your fruits and vegetables, eat a wide variety of foods, you know, eat in moderation, not too much of anything, eat whole grains. So some of it, you know, doesn't change as much. We, we do know some things that are good for us and have known that for a long time. So there's, they won't be adding donuts to the list anytime soon? Is that the <laughs> general? I think, you know, when we had a pyramid, that was up at the very tip. But, we, you know, we don't have a pyramid now. We have a plate. And, um, yeah, I, I don't think it's on the plate. That's in your, um, you know, occasional food. So most of us know intellectually what it means to eat healthy, but a lot of us still don't do it. And I wonder, what are the biggest barriers for Americans when it comes to eating a healthier diet? Yeah, that's like the million-dollar question. The person who gets that one right, you know, is the savior of, of nutrition, I guess. But I think um, a, a big part of it is our environment. If you think about your day, so right now our days maybe are very close to food in our kitchen. But prior to the pandemic, when we were out and about, out and about, as they say here in Wisconsin, you know, think about the gas station I've been in in the checkout line at, um, not to call out my favorite store too badly, but Kohl's. And, you know, um, the coffee shop, um, go to a basketball game, your break room at work. You know, what do they all have in common? Which seems like they shouldn't. Food, food everywhere. Food everywhere. So I think one of the things is there's just so much food around us everywhere that we go. We have fast food restaurants on, you know, virtually every corner. And, you know, Not in a totally bad way. Food is relatively inexpensive in the United States. You know, the amount that we have to pay out of our incomes for food, many of us, not all, isn't nearly what some countries have to pay. So it's pretty readily available. You can get a lot of calories for your dollar. So I think that the environment around us, lots of advertising, billboards, you know, I'm watching more TV now than I ever did during the pandemic. And commercial after commercial of food. Um, we can have it delivered to our house for free. You know, I, <laughs> that's kind of a big answer, but I think it's a way of saying it's all around us. Yeah. I've been thinking about how driven our culture is by individualism, as well as money, of course. And I wonder how some of these dietary guidelines, as they're implemented, take into account things like how many people are trying to eat gluten-free or how many people are going vegetarian and trying to eat little to no meat or, you know, people who say maybe are lactose intolerant, for example. And when, when dietary guidelines are developed, they're often used for things like schools or institutions or these kind of larger entities that then also have to, you know, cater to and feed the people who have those kinds of restrictions. So do the guidelines take into account those kinds of things? Uh, maybe growing gluten intolerance, for example. Yes. Um, so there's a few ways to answer that. The, the guidelines themselves are, are pretty broad and they do, they do discuss that. So for instance, they talk about you should have so many fruits and so many vegetables. They don't tell you which ones. Now they'll encourage colors. They'll say more, we don't eat very many dark green, but they don't say, you know, you have to have spinach or you have to have kale or you have to have broccoli. You know, they just talk about them in general. Eat the rainbow. Eat the rainbow. (laughs) Exactly. Can't go wrong there. (laughs) 
<laughs> Those Skittles count? Is that the <laughs> um, again, I think we're up at the tip of the pyramid if we still... <laughs> God. That's where I live. That's where I live. <laughs> you went the Skittles. So, you know, but they, they even talk about that, you know, that, you know, you have some, depending on how many calories you can take in based on your body size, how active you are, you you have some extra calories. And those are the ones you want to spend carefully on foods that maybe aren't as, as nutritious. But in general, you know, we're trying for pretty nutritious. But they've, I think they've gotten better over the years at acknowledging some of the differences. So, for instance, you know, they used to just say, well, you know, get your dairy and now it's like dairy means we need to have some calcium, we need to have vitamin D, and we have soy products that are fortified, and we have vegetables that have um, some calcium in them. So beginning to acknowledge that there are other ways to get nutrients that we need. They also, in the dietary guidelines, actually put together um, dietary patterns, they call them. They're at the very back end in the appendix, you know, not everybody gets that far, but us nutrition geeks get that far. And they have a Healthy U.S. diet, which is just they took the U.S. diet as it was, not that healthy, and tweaked it to make it healthy. So it didn't introduce whole new foods. It just modified them a bit to make it healthy. They have a vegetarian diet, a Mediterranean diet. Um, They give alternatives, you know, if you don't eat meat, for instance, in the protein group. But then again, it does really fall to a lot of the people in between. Um, and a group, since I work with them, that I'm going to have to promote is Cooperative Extension. So Extension in their programming, they operate um, in all the counties. And they take into account, I'm in a county where there's certain cultural preferences for foods. And, and so they make the education appropriate to that culture. Or I'm working with kids. Or I'm working with older adults. And they take those guidelines and they develop the education or the food demonstrations, or whatever it is that their communications that they're putting out to make them appropriate. Um, we have a lot of, for instance, bilingual educators who don't just translate things, but really think about, you know, in our culture, these are the kind of foods we eat so that people can really make a healthy diet in the way that's best for them, not the way that's best for me or, you know, somebody on the Dietary Guidelines Committee. Yeah. You mentioned earlier, you know, that one of the things you do is work with families. Like as part of that, the way in which people eat as far as like, I mean, it seems like as a society, we don't, you know, sit around the dinner table as often. It's a little more, you know, catch as catch can as a culture to a degree. Is that, does that factor into some of the, 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 the decisions that go into this? Yes, they I think um, the dietary guidelines don't address that as much. Um, That wasn't one of their charges this time around. They were a bit constrained by the questions they were requested to um, address this time in contrast to previous versions. But they do talk about that in general, and we talk about it a lot in our education, the importance of family meals. Kids who eat with their families just tend to have better outcomes, perhaps because um, their parents are talking to them while they're eating dinner, perhaps because what's prepared as a family is different than what's prepared if everybody makes their own. Interestingly enough, I have uh, gone out and tried to dig up the data on family meals. It's not very easy to find. And it, it actually hasn't fallen as much as everybody thinks it has. I think what's changed maybe a little bit is the definition of a family, for one. Um, you know, it might not be the leave it to beaver family anymore. It might be a different kind of family that's gathering. And it's also that people are perhaps eating out more or getting takeout more or getting prepared foods, but they're still eating them together. Doesn't mean they're not mm-hmm. eating together just because they got the food on the way home at Chipotle or, you know, some other restaurant. They might still be sitting together and eating it. There's probably a little bit less cooking going on um, these days, although there's, you know, a lot of food going out of grocery stores these days with the pandemic. So that's um, one thing we hope is happening, that we might be getting a little bit more cooking going on and people might stick with that. The home cooked meals tend to be more nutritious than takeout or restaurant meals. Mm -hmm. Well, right, because fat and salt and sugar taste good. And like, you know, the fast food restaurants want us to keep coming back. And so that's a good way to do it. Um, How do the dietary guidelines take into account access uh, with these sort of growing income disparities that we see and issues with things like food deserts or people working multiple jobs and not being able to cook those home cooked meals? Yeah. So I think the bulk of the dietary guidelines is concerned with um, nutrition, nutrients, foods, dietary patterns. They do then, and they have in the past, put that into 
to frameworks. So they use a model, something called the socio-ecological model that we've used that says people don't just, you know, eat by themselves, they eat within a family, they shop within a community, they get food at their workplace. And so the Dietary Guidelines Committee has always suggested that those organizations look at the guidelines as well. And because those guidelines are supposed to inform all federal nutrition food and nutrition programs, those programs should be also addressing access. And to some degree, they do. We have the Women, Infant, Children Supplemental Nutrition Program. Um, they changed recently their food packages to align themselves with the dietary guidelines and provide more fruits and vegetables, um, and particularly fresh ones, to moms and their families and their small children. Um, We've had more programs that have opened up for seniors to provide them with fruits and vegetables who are low income. So those programs have begun to shift to follow those dietary guidelines as well. The same with school meals. You know, a good portion of the school meals in this country are free or reduced costs, breakfasts and lunches. And um, under the Obama administration, they made a strong push to have those meals line up with the dietary guidelines. I don't know where that's gone to now. There was in the current administration a move to kind of roll that back, which I think was unfortunate. But there is an obligation on many people's parts who administer these programs to then look at the dietary guidelines and say, if fresh fruits and vegetables or canned or frozen, I don't want to leave those out, if fruits and vegetables and whole grains are what we're supposed to be eating, I need to have those required to be in my school lunch program and my free and reduced lunches too so that people have access. The other thing is we do work in extension with community partners um, and in coalitions to try to do the local policy changes about, you know, getting stores better, um, better access to stores that have high quality foods, you know, in local neighborhoods where they haven't been before. Yeah. And you mentioned, you know, the, how things are right now being very different and, Obviously, the you know USDA guidelines are on a, a five-year cycle, so it's they're not going to be taking that into account. But I guess I mean, is there any way that going forward that the the pandemic and you know so many fewer children getting you know free and reduced school lunches, which I mean sometimes that's the food that they get, is that? being taken in, into account? Or are there any conversations that are going on about that or how to address that on a, on a national USDA sort of level? So I think USDA has been very concerned with that and has been working closely with a lot of, for instance, waivers, you know, that children could come, you know, their parents could drive them over to school or their parents could come to school and pick up a bag lunch, you know, that wouldn't have been allowed you know, under normal circumstances. So a lot of that went on. But I think the bigger conversation that went on was the recognition um, on two levels. One is the issue of food security. How many people were food insecure or who were on the edge? And then COVID happened and they lost their jobs or their hours were restricted. And all of a sudden you saw on TV these lines at food banks that were extremely long. So I think there are national conversations about that that that's not right. And how are we going to address that? And that's a much bigger problem than just nutrition that has to do with people's jobs and and that kind of thing. I think the other thing that came up was with COVID, we found that the people that were um, having the worst outcomes were in many times minorities. And in many cases, people who had pre-existing health conditions many of which were nutrition-related. So overweight and obesity, hypertension, um, diabetes. So that has brought up the conversation of why do we have so many people in the United States with chronic health conditions that are diet-related? We have the, the most food in our country, probably, that the whole world does. And we do have lots of nutritious foods and the ability to provide that. So why is it that we have people who are, are suffering and then when something like this happens, they suffer so, so much more um, than people who, who had better diets have better health. Yeah. So it's really brought forth that conversation. Yeah. It's really put a, a spotlight on maybe not the absence of safety nets. Um, I know that's kind of a loaded you know term, but this is something that I, as someone who doesn't have children, uh, you know, took for granted or like the thought didn't really cross my mind that the the role that public school plays in in a community on that level. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And other organizations like WIC who have people who come in 
who suddenly couldn't come in and, you know, aren't getting the um, counseling that they need, for instance, to breastfeed their babies. You know, people are, um, I was on a call recently with a group of people who, you know, were talking about trying to hold things up to a little screen on their phone, on their computer to show the moms, you know, here's how to hold the baby. And, you know, it really showed there's a lot of people that depend on in-person support um, to be healthy and to feed their babies healthy, to feed their families healthy. I think if anything good comes out of this for us, it's the recognition that there were some programs that were moved online that were successful, that hadn't been in the past. And we might have a chance to reach people that we couldn't reach before because, you know, you got a new baby, not always the easiest thing to, you know, get on the bus and bring the new baby into an appointment. Maybe you can do something online. Um, so I think we're figuring out some good tools to reach more people um, to help their health. I still think we need in-person, you know, one-on-one contact for a lot of things, but I think the online's really coming into its own now. This podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences. Join the Madison-based team working to lead earlier cancer detection. Visit exactsciences.com to view the company's hundreds of open jobs. So I want to talk a little bit about how food policy gets made just a little bit. Um, The agricultural lobbies are incredibly powerful uh, when it comes to dietary guidelines, in part because, you know, maybe there's going to be something that comes out that doesn't have us eating enough chicken. Well, the chicken lobby is going to have something to say about that, right? So, and and that's been a, a long time criticism about how these guidelines sort of get formed and made. And I wonder if you can speak just even a little bit to the influence that lobbies can have on policy like that and what that might look like in this latest version. You said, you know, the science is out, but the guidelines themselves aren't yet. This seems to me to be a gap in time where the beef folks can say, gosh, there's not enough beef on those guidelines, you know? Yeah. Well, I can give you a little bit of what I observed. So in the last dietary guidelines, um, there was information about reducing our intakes of processed meats, red meat. Um, In the scientific report, there was also they addressed food security and and took a long view and said, for us to be secure for the long run, for our population to eat well, we have to think about sustainability. Well, that information, um, those words changed by the time we got to the dietary guidelines. And it's a public record. You can go online and do a Google and find the letters that were written by senators um, to USDA saying, you know, I don't think the evidence is good on this. This should not be in there. And of course, um, I guess, you know, we can hope we, we elect our senators. Um, we can write to them. You know, they might be receiving money from a lobby, but they are supposed to represent us um, and tell them that we think that the science should drive the policy on health for the United States, not, not lobbies. So that's something, you know, each of us actively can do. I can tell you the the scientists that are on these panels, um, I've known many of them, are very good at what they do. They're very, very caring, very concerned. They're under a lot of pressure. They do a lot in a short amount of time. If they didn't care about the health of Americans, they wouldn't be there doing that because that's it's <laughs> not a paid position. This is, you know, volunteer. And what I do is I go and read the report. And then I work through that and I work with our educational programs to say, here's what the evidence says. Here's how we will, you know, follow the guidelines, but help people understand this is what the guidelines mean for you if we look at all of it. And also to help people with the guidelines might not have sustainability in it, but that can be individuals' choices. And if individuals that we're working with want to make choices about the planet and what they want to do, then we can tell them how to do that in a healthy way. That's that's their choice. They they certainly have every right to be concerned about things like sustainability and and whether, you know, how animals are treated. And and also like you were mentioning, you know, they need to address their own needs. What if they have lactose intolerance or you know what? I don't like cooked spinach. So, you know, it doesn't matter when anybody, you know, says to me I'm not going to eat that. So I have that right to to figure out and put together the diet that's best for me, for my values and my morals, for my health, you know, for my family. I have actually stopped using the word healthy in most of my writing, all of my writing, because it seems like such a loaded and unclear term these days because of how people might define it. And I think there's also a lot of loaded language around. Um, around body size. Uh, 
And so I wonder if you can speak at all to how you avoid stigmatizing larger bodies when you talk about health issues that may be related to weight and diet. Yes, that's really a hard one. Um, and again, just like the food environment is around us, so is the uh, media environment where um, I think it's gotten better that people like, you know, Oprah Winfrey, you know, with her weight loss and gain and, and other celebrities have started to say, look, you know, this isn't all about being this unrealistic sub-zero size. It's about being healthy. And this is how many people look across the United States and we should reflect that. So, I think one of the things we do in the programs is that I work with extension. It's a way that I always talk is to say, we want to make you help you make the, the best choices for you and your family. That's not by my definition of best. It's not by my definition of health. Here are the kinds of foods that are associated with good outcomes over the long term. And those good in outcomes aren't necessarily weight. There are things like, you know, living longer having energy, being able to get up in the morning and, and go to work, think well at school, be strong, exercise, take a walk, garden. You know, it's, it's being able to do all those things. And then there is, you know, the health that is for you to address with your healthcare provider. So your healthcare provider can look at things and say, you know, you have blood pressure at this level that's very dangerous. You could have a, a stroke. We're going to talk about how to manage that. And then we can say, okay, here are the foods to help with your blood pressure. Mm -hmm. It's not me saying this is what you need to do for your blood pressure. It's me saying, let me help you pick out, you know, foods and diets and things that work for you, but are also healthy. It often ends up at weight. Even the participants in the program often bring it up. And so I try to talk to them about a long-term outcome related to weight, if that's their goal of being healthy. And it usually isn't, um, you know, fad diets. It's usually healthy diets overall, because that's what works in the longer run. But I, I, you know, we're, we have tough opposition in the media. And I often actually tell our educators, you know, sometimes it's hard because what we say isn't sexy. You know, what's sexy is to have a book with someone pretty on the cover. You know, one of my favorites, unfortunately, in terms of nutrition has not been Gwyneth Paltrow. She's beautiful. The stuff she puts on her website and, you know, promotes is not, you know, very evidence-based, but it's very aspirational. And, you know, that's a lot for us to be up against in social media. And yeah. and so sometimes we sound boring and we just have to figure out how to find it, what really matters to people and reach out to that and try to get that without, you know, going down the road of um, some people <laughs> and websites yeah. and blogs and such. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. With a name like Goop, you know, it's got to be good. Um, the <laughs> you know what? I like some of her recipes. I'm just going to come out there and own it. Oh, sure. They may be good. Yeah, yeah they may be good. <sighs> but it's the it's, you know, one of the aspects of that whole, you know, wellness industry Um sort of, you know, where it's like, oh, we're just asking the question. You're like, maybe, maybe these weird, you know, healing crystals are actually useful. And it's, they're just not. Um, <laughs> but um, I guess on, on that a little bit, um, what are some of the the misconceptions that you hear a lot about, um, you know, good or, uh, you know, I guess, quote unquote, healthy diets? Are there any I mean, you, you mentioned earlier the idea of like people looking for weight, and I know that weight is not necessarily the always an ideal metric. Same thing with BMI. Are there any good metrics? I suppose that's kind of a two part question. But <laughs> <laughs> well, I think one of the enduring um, things in all the weight loss diets that I hear, as well as you know diets that are supposed to you know stop you from getting cancer or make you live long, is that you can't have any carbs. So that was something that probably in nutrition we didn't do the best job on early on when we began to worry about fat, and then people just replaced that fat with carbs, and they weren't the best carbs. So really helping people understand, you know, there are better carbs to pick, ones that come with a lot of nutrients. Um, I have a lot of background from my um, early graduate work in dietary fiber. I like all the carbs that have fiber, whole grains, fruits, vegetables. And indeed, you know, diets that remove things like cookies and um, Skittles, sorry, Chris, um, and things like that, you know, that might not be a bad thing or, you know, reduce them. But the idea that sudden, taking out carbs will cure everything that um, has happened in your life or with your body is 
I think, kind of misleading. So that's I that's um, a misconception. And then, sorry, what was the second part of that one? <laughs> you said it was a oh, two goodness. part. Um, <laughs> now we have to all go back. And it think. was more the, um, <laughs> the idea of like, are, are there any like ideal metrics, I suppose, because I think the BMI is generally, uh, I mean, at least everything I've heard about, you know, BMI is that it's a terrible way to, to gauge things um, where I think I'm, you know, would be qualified as, you know, morbidly obese, maybe according to the BMI when obviously I'm, I'm not <laughs> just because of, you know, certain things. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, that's not the best indicator. It's for us, BMI is really a better population level look, you know, it's gone up a lot across our population over time. And that's something we got to watch. Um, but on an individual level, that's not so so good. I think some of the things I mentioned earlier, you know, how do you actually feel? Um, there's people that have gone on some diets that talk about, you know, being nauseated, having headaches. And I think, well, gee, that doesn't seem like a very good diet. Um, another is how sustainable is it for you? If you pick up a, a eating pattern and it's a struggle and you can't do it, then maybe that's not a very good eating pattern. Yeah. But then I think you want, you know, you you should pay attention to to things that your primary care physician might look at you with. You know, things like your blood pressure, your blood lipids. They are markers of how your body is handling things. Not any one individual one, but the whole thing together. I would look at that. And then, you know, how, do I have energy? Can I get up every morning and get my work done? Do I feel like going for a walk? You know, if you're uh, someone that works out or, you know, um, enters... Um, when they're back available to us again, r rides or runs, can you get to the end of those and feel okay? You know, I think those are the kind of things you want to look at. And then, you know, something um, we work with people on that's kind of tough is, you know, are you getting hungry and then eating because you're hungry? Where, where and when are you eating? Is your eating pattern, you know, I eat when I watch TV. I eat alone. You know, I think looking at how you're eating is another way of looking at maybe some marker of how healthy it is. Yeah. I'd say, are you enjoying it too? I mean, if you're getting, you know, if you're just feeling tortured, uh, you know, or guilty or, you know, I think you really got to look at that. I mean, what, what's the point boy, if we can't enjoy some of our food. <laughs> right. Yeah. I feel like I, the most recent thing I was hearing before was uh, about sugar and about sugar being the devil. And I'm always sort of immediately skeptical of anything where it's like, just write this entire category of food off yeah. or this entire category of thing. And I, I also have a lot of thoughts and feelings around this idea of clean food or dirty food or like good food and bad food, or it's a guilty pleasure. Like anytime I hear guilty pleasure, I want to throw something. Um, I just, it, it to me, it, it seems like we are, putting qualities on food that they don't inherently have mm -hmm. like a food being somehow a bad food. Well, if it's food, <laughs> it, 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 it doesn't have moral characteristics. I don't think. No. And I just wonder if you have any thoughts about the idea of guilty pleasure foods. Yeah. And I think, you know, going with that, I think we, we assign, um, moral attributes to the food, but then we assign them to the people, you know, that bad, that bad oh, person yeah. that's got the Coke in their cart, um, you know, yes. um, and you know, you gotta, you, we need not to do that. I don't think that serves anybody well. And as you said, there's no good or nutritionists have been saying this forever. So again, you know, we're not real sexy when we say this, but there aren't good and bad foods. There are, you know, there are foods that provide certain nutrients and um, are together in dietary patterns are healthy. And there's other foods that provide less, but they may provide pleasure. They may have a social um, aspect. I can tell you that September and October is like birthday month in my family. Almost everybody has our birthdays in about a three-week period. So you know, we love birthday cake in that time period and the candles and the blowing them out and the ritual. And I don't think there's any issue with that. I think the more we make people feel bad about it, probably the worse off they are because then it becomes, um, you know, a, well, I have to not let people see me eat this or I have to eat it quick or I can only do it after I work out or it becomes a, a funny way of eating those foods. Whereas you, if you just say, you know what? McDonald's has the best French fries or whatever, you know, take your pick. Um, 
and you know, once a week. Now, 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 now you're done with this. It's like, oh no. You know, then you can just say, on you know, on this day, I'm going to have them. I can tell you, I kind of stopped eating French fries because I just couldn't afford those calories anymore. And then I found sweet potato fries, and that became my quest to find the best ones. And when I find them, I'm going to have them. Um, and the rest of the time, I'm not eating them, so you know, not a big deal. I started thinking about how I felt after some things, for example, like fries are a good example, things that are fried. Like I, I'll be like, oh, this is delicious and I love it. And then not too long after that, I don't feel great. And and I like for a long time, I could kind of forget about it. And I'm getting to a place in my life where I can't as much where I'm like, okay, if I have a small amount of ice cream, I'm fine. If I have more of than that, I don't feel yep. good. I just don't. Yep. I, I think that's the part of listening to what your body's telling you, um, you know, and it's related to your mind for sure. I know that, you know, at times when I haven't eaten as well, it's not just that I don't feel well, but I think, oh gosh, I didn't do myself any favors there. That's not going to help me get on my bike tomorrow, eating that, you know, second bowl of ice cream at 10, you know, and, and so I have to think, okay, next time I, I just need to take a step back and ask why I'm doing that and ask in the long run, is that going to be a, a choice I want to make? I had a question about something you mentioned earlier about taking um, one of the one of the ways that the USDA dietary guidelines put things in context or in in formats or whatever, like this idea of taking a, a U.S. diet, a typical one, and then modifying it. And I wonder if that is maybe why we're seeing like the beef burger that's a third mushrooms <laughs> or whatever, like these kinds of things or I wonder if you have any more examples of of something like that, of taking that regular, typical U.S. diet and modifying it. So I think when they did that, what they what they were trying to say is, we're not just going to take a diet and say, well, you have to take out all the meat. We're going to say Americans eat about this much of their protein from animal sources, this much from plant sources to meet our nutrient needs in total and to have a healthy dietary pattern that's associated with health we should be eating a little bit more of the plant foods for protein. And so that's what the shift was. It wasn't like, okay, take out the meat. Or, and it wasn't just telling people, don't eat this, eat more of this. It was saying, in this pattern, we're just going to, they use the term in the last dietary guidelines, shifts. So we're not going to start over. We're not going to say, here's your ideal diet, go forth. We're saying, here's where people, let's be real here. This is what people were eating. And, you know, they're just doing this across the population. It's not for an individual. It's, you know, here's a pattern, you know, and then they, they distribute it across age and, and weight. So, you know, it gets, there's less calories if you're smaller or if you're younger. There's more calories in this pattern if you're older. But they said, let's take what people are really doing. How much can we just nudge it and meet the dietary guidelines? And then they put that out as a pattern. Then there's a vegetarian pattern. So, you know, that doesn't have things in it. So in the in the pattern that exists, most people eat eggs. So they kept the eggs in there, but maybe it was one less egg instead of one more egg. So that's what I mean by the nudges. And then I think um, the the move to do that as well as the other patterns is one that I think is really important for people to understand about a whole diet and dietary patterns is we really learned over time that, you know, taking a supplement of vitamin C wasn't, you know, the answer. Eating um, blueberries wasn't the answer. The best health outcomes came with these patterns of diets. And that's really what the dietary guidelines are around. And if you think about it, people think, oh, the science is always changing. We could eat eggs. We can't. Margarine versus butter, blah, blah. It's always changing. One of the things I don't think has changed is I have never seen a study I, I really can't recall ever seeing a study in which someone looked at a dietary pattern like fruits and vegetables, whole grains, um, sources of calcium like dairy, a wide variety of protein, where the health outcomes weren't good, where that increased cancer and heart disease risk never happens. It's always associated with good outcomes. So in that sense, they're saying, you know, you can move amongst this and, and change things up to meet your own needs. But that pattern always comes out well. You never really get a pattern where all the carbs are gone, or you don't get patterns where one source of protein is excluded, like you were saying. You don't get a pattern where there's no sugar, 
or some of these bizarre ones where they've taken out, you know, a whole category of fruit or vegetables never shows up as being healthy. It's always this, you know, variety, moderation, good whole pat, whole food pattern. Yeah. Kind of a little bit on that line. Uh, what is the most ridiculous fad diet that you have maybe ever heard of? <laughs> There's oh, so many, but like, are there any? There are just... so many. Like my blood type. Like you know, I can't yeah, even. Like, don't eat foods that are shaped like other foods or something. You know... I don't know. <laughs> I've been around. You know, I've been. I know I don't look it, but I've been around for a long time, and um, and I lost track. And you know what? I'm going to be brutally honest here. I don't read most of the diet books. I don't think they're worth it to be honest, often there's some other nutritionist that does and they do a, you know, review and I look at that. I just don't think they're worth my time to read. Um, I think they might be more worth my time where I counseling patients who were using those diets so I could better understand them. But um, I think, you know, things like blending everything up or, you know, that grapefruit diet or um, bone marrow broth diets. I think the most bizarre ones to me are the ones that where there's like one or two foods or soup all day, you know, where they're not even like higher protein, lower fat, higher carb, whatever, but they're like two foods. And I think, you know, you probably lose weight because you're just so sick of eating that, that, you know, you don't eat it. (laughs) Yeah. French women don't get fat has the leek soup. You can have leek broth and then like leeks for like, and it's like a reset, she says. Or when I was in college, I tried the cabbage oh, soup diet. Yeah, yeah. Remember that? Uh-huh. <laughs> and I think you know, Could, couldn't even yeah. do it. And you know, the fact is, any diet you go on that cuts your calories back is going to make you lose weight. If that's the reason you know that you're on it, yeah. It's also pretty well established that almost all of them, if not all of them, in six months or a year, people weigh the same that they did in the beginning. So we're just not—they're not sustainable. And even if they, some of them were. Something like cabbage soup is not going to be healthy. Yeah. From my experience, I think the, you know, either Weight Watchers or, you know, the four hour body or whatever, these other things, the biggest takeaway that I've had is just, it makes you hyper aware of what you're eating. Whereas, you know, before it would be, you know, a, a bag of chips or whatever. And, you know, now it's just like, oh, like I can only have a certain amount and that's it. And it just, it, you know, has this, it forces you to quantify and just be very, you know, uh, puts it at, at, at the top of mind. Yeah. Yeah. I and I, I don't think I've ever been huge on calorie counting, but I do think if you take a look, it can be eye opening. So when the apps started coming out on phones for this, you know, I, I used one because I thought, okay, you know, I'm going to use this, see how well this works. And it actually worked pretty well for me. I'm in nutrition. <laughs> And so I'd be like, oh, okay, I had this, I'm going to put this in. And I'd look in horror at how many calories that was, because I just didn't realize or the serving size, you know, I thought, okay, I got my bowl of cereal. Yeah. And then I pour it in the measuring cup and it's like, holy cow, it was a cup. And a cup was a lot more than the half cup that I thought I was getting. So I think it does bring that awareness. And, um, you know, there's a, a bit of a trend in our field. We need to see where it comes out about mindful eating, which is some of brings in some of that of just thinking when you're eating, eating more slowly, enjoying it and and not rushing through, which is then easy to eat too much. If you're piling the, you know, you're eating right out of the bag of chips instead of putting it in a bowl or you're eating in front of the TV or you're bored and you're eating, it can become somewhat mindless and a little easier to get a lot of food in that's not as good for you before you know it. Yeah. So as we start to wrap up here, I I do have a question that I'd like you to address, which is about um, supplements like Huel. Say it again. Like like meal replacements, like 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 Huel or Soylent. You know the like it's it's all you you get like all of your your stuff in there, um, and just you know shake it up and you drink it. I don't know. It's you know what I mean. A meal, some kind of meal replacement. Sure. Yeah, and yeah, and you know. Again, that's not something I pay a ton of attention to. To be honest, a lot of our participants in our programs, um, I don't hear that often. It doesn't seem to be a tool they're using as often. Maybe they are in other circumstances and not in the general nutrition ed in these programs. I can tell you, I used one 
decades ago because I had to fit into my sister's wedding dress and she was a lot because I wanted to wear it instead of buying a new one and she was a lot smaller than me (laughs) and it did work yeah it did Did work work? and I think like many other diets they can work because they control things for you you don't you're not going to the cupboard and making the choice of adding the sauce or not or sprinkling on the cheese or how much cheese on your grilled cheese it's doing it for you now there are times where that's helpful for people. And, you know, a lot of those things evolved out of something that was really a medical use where people couldn't eat, you know, or couldn't swallow or were had a um, cancer or some other condition that was making it really hard for them to get in enough nutrition. And then they kind of evolved into this, well, let's send them out into the general public weight loss kind of thing. And, and again, they're a tool and some people have used them successfully for weight loss. They're not a way of eating. I don't think they're not whole foods. They're not very social. You know, if you want to eat with your family and friends, you know, what are you going to do? Not that we're really <laughs> doing too much social eating. Okay? <laughs> yeah, do it on Zoom. Um, so I, I don't know that long term it's very sustainable, but depending on the product, the product itself may be fine in terms of nutrition. But um, I also just don't, I'm not sure about drinking food instead of chewing. Sure. <laughs> That's something I had not even considered. Well, in turn, <laughs> you know, there's actually some evidence around um, foods that are high in, in water, you know, filling you up more, you know, so you can eat like a mm. half of a cantaloupe and it's like 70 calories because it's got so much mm. water and, and soups and, you know, the, so there is something to eating foods that are high in water. And of course, a lot of our whole foods Again, my old fruit and vegetable bandwagon, um, they're going to be high in water and, and, and fill you up. They take you time to chew. Anything with a lot of fiber is going to take you a while to chew. Let your stomach catch up with your head. Um, so, you know, there's some value to that. Um, I'm just not sure if meal replacements are, you know, the way to live. Sure. Maybe a way to be for a short period of time for some reason, but. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, thank you for your indulgence there. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for for being with us today. I, I wonder, as as we sort of uh, head out here, if you have anything that you're really loving this fall in terms of things that you're eating and drinking for the autumn? Yeah. Um, you know, I think the thing I look forward to the most is things that you make like in a crock pot or on a big pot on your stove and it cooks for a long time and it's hot and it smells good. So one of our favorites is a chili that we make and it's a delicious chili, but it's also because it came from good friends of ours who would invite us over to watch, you know, a Packer game or we were living in a different state at the time to remain unnamed, but they'd watch invite us over for a football game and they would make that chili and, you know, you have warm bread and um, salad. And so I think it also comes with a lot of those memories of sharing. Those are the kind of foods that are, are really fun and nice to share and fall with family. Cause they're, you know, it's a big pot, everybody gets their serving. So I think that's the kind of food that I look most forward to in fall, big pots, crock pots, that kind of thing. Excellent. That sounds wonderful. How about you? Oh my gosh. I'm about to break out. I'm about to break out the Instant Pot. Yes, again. I love the Instant Pot. Because I, I used it all last winter, but I don't use it a ton in the summertime because we're mostly grilling outside and eating mm-hmm. lighter. Yep. So lighter in terms of like, you know, stews and soups during the winter yep. and that yeah. kind of thing. So yeah. But tonight I'm roasting a chicken because I love roasting a whole chicken and I like to put like stale bread ah. underneath it. Oh, it's so I'll good. have to try that. I haven't mm-hmm. tried that. The bread gets like crunchy on the outside and then like soaked with chicken fat. It's so awesome. So it's kind of kind of like a stuffing, but not. Yeah, but it's on, the, on underneath the chicken. It's just yeah, mm-hmm. good. Yeah. Here it was thrown Highly out. Recommend. Giving that stale bread to the squirrels. I didn't know. <laughs> Heck no! Put it under your chicken and like blow yeah. your mind. It's so great. Yeah, I I totally second the Instant Pot. Um, That is one of the most magical devices that, you know, we've encountered over here. We hard boil eggs with it mostly, but it's, you know, yeah, makes the easiest peeling hard boiled eggs. I think I've ever haven't done that either. You know, yeah, it's it's we need to. Yeah. Um, and let's see. Yeah. Just been sauteing, uh, like chicken and, you know, veggies and stuff like that for the most part. Yeah. Sounds good. I'll also, I think I have like 25 pounds of apples in my house right now. So, you know, 
just, and I'm not going to can any of them because I'm lazy. I'm going to eat some of them and then I'm going to put some of them in cake and pie and that's it. I can take Apple some off your hand. my favorite. Yeah. I, well, I'll just take the whole pie off your hand. You know no, what? Not I'm, yeah. Send the pie waited. my way. That, that's the idea. That's the- <laughs> yeah. I made an apple cider donut cake last weekend and it was wonderful. <gasps> Ooh. Yes. Yeah. Sounds Delicious. That's, yeah. Apples and cider and yeah, that's a, another great fall food. For sure. Well, thank you again for coming on. We really appreciate it. Thank you. This has been The Corner Table, a podcast about food and drink in Madison, Wisconsin, produced by the Capital Times. Patrick Christians composed our music. Natalie Yar edits the show. We're going to be dropping episodes every other week, available wherever you get your podcasts. You can, as always, find us individually on Twitter and together as a show on Facebook. Go to captimes.com for more food and drink news, including a recent feature on luchador, tequila, and taco bar, and a profile of the folks behind Cookie Exchange. I am even headed up to Culver's to talk about their new veggie burger. Hmm. Next episode, we're going to be talking about food delivery robots on campus, which is going to be legitimately fascinating. Uh, The students, it turns out, have made them into pets. I love it so much. I am Lindsay Christians, food editor and granola maker. And I'm Chris Lay, perpetual cheat day appreciator. And our wish for you this week is a delicious apple cake brought to your door by your wonderful podcast co-host. Aw, cheers. Boom. All right. We did it. This podcast has been brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation the makers of Colaguard. Once again, be sure to learn more at exactsciences.com.